Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jeremy Shapiro and as you've probably noticed, if you're a frequent listener of this podcast, I am not Mark Leonard. Uh, I think you'll have to learn to live with some disappointment in the new world order that is coming. Uh, Mark is in China and he's discovered that uh, telecommunications from there is not that great. But we have, a, I think, a really good podcast for you this week anyway. We will try to persevere in his absence. Uh, and we have a, an all-star cast of ECFR fellows to discuss the recent uh, NATO summit and the impact that uh, Donald Trump is having on transatlantic relations. Um, so we have uh, from Brussels our man at the summit, uh, Ulrika Franca. Uh, we have from Paris, Manuel Lafont Rapmi, and from our Warsaw office, Piotr Buras. Uh, so uh, let's try to get right into it. Um, you know, the, these summits with Donald Trump as president have um, always been exciting. NATO summits used to be so boring. Uh, I don't think any of us could even name one before, the, before this one. But uh, Trump really wasted no time in bringing theater to this one. At the, at the very first um, breakfast meeting, he uh, launched into a clearly planned attack it wasn't directed against Russia, it wasn't directed against any military threat to the alliance, it was aimed at Germany. Uh, and he said that Germany is captive to Russia because it's getting so much of its energy from Russia and that they've been paying billions and billions of dollars to the country that we're supposed to be protecting them against. He also, uh, at various points in the summit, demanded that, uh, that the NATO allies pay not the 2% that He'd been demanding all along, but 4%. Uh, and he ended the summit with a only, only thinly veiled uh, threat that if uh, his demands aren't satisfied, the United States will, will leave NATO, although he did add that he doesn't think that that will have to happen. Uh, so I think what we'd like to discuss here is how Europeans are seeing uh, Trump's performance at the NATO summit, what they think it means, and what they're planning to do about it. Uh, and maybe we can start with you, Ulrika, because you're, you're at the summit, you're our, you're our man on the ground, and I wonder if you could give us some sense of what the vibe is there. Is it uh, panic, complacency, or something in between? Sure, happy to. I like that you keep calling me the man uh, at the summit. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, I'm here in Brussels. Um, I gotta say, I mean, it's a bit all of the above. Um, it's panic, it's complacency. At this point, we really don't know what, what to make of any of this because there has been such an incredible back and forth. It was, it was really striking actually for me because I was um, sitting in a session about uh, NATO-US relations with two US senators and they were emphasizing just how important NATO is for the United States and how much support there is for, the, for NATO in the United States. And while they were talking, these breaking news happened that there was a crisis session um, happening because Trump apparently had said that the US would go at it alone, whatever that means, if um, the other allies wouldn't pay 2% in defense spending until 2019. Sorry, the United States would go at it alone. Um, and so, so th there, was a, there was a brief moment of panic. And then shortly afterwards, um, 
uh, Trump held his press conference where he basically said the exact opposite, where he said that um, NATO was one of the best organizations out there and that in the last two days it had been strengthened so much. And there was literal you know, laughter in the audience that watched this press conference because it was so absurd. So, I mean, he has now left Brussels and I think he certainly won't be missed. Um, I think there is a sentiment here that this summit will only be over once the Helsinki meeting between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin is over because this is really where he may be, uh, where Trump may be um, uh, giving away uh, some of NATO's crown jewels. We don't really know. So I think we're still bracing for that. But yeah, other than that, it has been a very weird summit and it's not entirely clear what to make of this. Just as a very last note, the communique that came out of the summer it is actually quite substantial. I mean, it's 23 pages. Um, it was agreed beforehand and it's it's there's actually quite a lot of good things in it. So on paper, this doesn't look so so bad. Yeah, so we're confronted with that sort of uh, dilemma that we've often had in the Trump administration, that the president is a raging bull, that he makes all sorts of statements, but yet the policy beneath him doesn't look that dramatically different than, um, than traditional American policy. And so people are left sort of trying to figure out who they should believe. Uh, should they believe the policy or should they believe the president of the United States? Uh, how, how is that seen in, uh, from, a, from the standpoint of Paris, Manuel? I think that um, you had this kind of complacency that Trump was not as significant as the, the rest of your foreign policy interlocutors in Washington and that what really counts uh, is what you get in the statements and the decisions and not in the tweets. Uh, at the beginning of uh, Trump's term. But now you have the accumulation of not just tweets and uh, bold statements to the press, uh, but you have an accumulation of actual decisions that really uh, shift uh, the dynamic, not just in NATO, but NATO is interesting because it's, uh, it's one of the tip of a bigger iceberg, which is slowly emerging, uh, that has to do also with trade, obviously, and, uh, and a lot of other issues. And I think in Paris, well, obviously, the relationship to NATO is not as strong as um, felt as needed as uh, elsewhere in Europe. You still have a sense that this summit um, is, is a good indicator of the way Trump wants to handle the transatlantic relationship. And I agree with Ulrike that uh, we need to see what happens in the summit with Putin to, to get the full picture. So obviously we can uh, be complacent, as you suggested, by looking at what came out of the summit in terms of uh, NATO's resilience, in terms of uh, the discussion on burden sharing and the fact that there is a rise of the European defense budgets, etc. Uh, but the problem is that clearly um, the way Trump's approach, uh, the way Trump approaches the, the alliance uh, and the security guarantees that go with the alliance is, is a source of worries for the French uh, defense establishment. Well, what, do people think, what do people in Paris think that Trump is trying to do? Is he trying to destroy the alliance? Is he trying to destroy the world order? Or is he just, uh, you know, acting out? What is, what is their perspective on what, is, on what the purpose of all of this is? I think more and more people are, are taking Trump uh, seriously for what he says. And he doesn't say that he wants to destroy the liberal order or the, uh, 
the U.S.-led uh, world order. It just says that it wants America first, and people progressively, gradually understand that America first doesn't mean but others can get a few things too. It's a very harsh uh, zero-sum game, and that's true on security, it's true on trade, etc. The French obviously have uh, uh, have been spared so far more than uh, other Europeans. Uh, and the, the personal relationship between the two presidents is only one uh, aspect of how France has been spared. But but you can see that this is uh, a source of worry in terms of the the weakening of the multilateral order of NATO, of the easing tensions within the EU, uh, and and some of the concern that the French have these days on foreign policy are precisely about how other Europeans are going to react. But and Manuel, is the, is, the, is the alliance still alive? Does it still work? Is it still what they had, what it has always been? If it is a, if it is that sort of transactional deal that Trump is proposing? That, that is exactly uh, the question. And uh, the fact is that for the French, there always was probably more doubts or, or more comfort with the doubts uh, that was always there. The reason why De Gaulle got out of uh, the uh, integrated uh, uh, military command, the reason why the French have developed their own uh, nuclear deterrent is precisely because of the idea that there was always a doubt, maybe not that the security guarantee was not there all the time, but surely that it may not be there all the time. Uh, uh, and so the, uh, the, French, the alliance has finally become as cynical as the French always thought it was. <laughs> exactly. And yet... Uh-huh. That's even, comforting, I suppose, in a certain way. Uh, even but, very cynically, the French still believe that uh, Europe is not ready at right now to do without NATO and without the US. So that that is the problem seen, uh, I suppose, from Paris. Yeah, and that is probably the core of why people need to need to take Trump seriously and even need to try to appease him because they're not ready to do without the United States and therefore not ready to do without the president of the United States. Um, but Piotr, I'd like to turn to you because obviously the Poland has a much less cynical view of the NATO alliance for obvious reasons than, um, uh, than France does. Uh, and so, and they also have a very odd relationship with, uh, with the Donald Trump administration because at the same time that uh, the Polish government is extremely worried about, I imagine, about this Helsinki summit that's coming up with Putin. They also, frankly, probably approve approve of a lot of the ways in which he uh, is pushing back at the Brussels establishment and pushing back at the Germans. And specifically, interestingly, um, when Donald Trump was referring to Germany being a captive of Russia, he was referring to this Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline that the Russians are building to uh, across the sea to Germany uh, and saying that that was something that was uh, quite illegitimate and at odds with um, their alliance obligations, which is of course a case that Poland has been making for some time. So how do, how do, how do polls assess Donald Trump's overall uh, effect on the alliance? I think, Jeremy, that the Polish political establishment tends to see the glass rather half full than half empty. And uh, referring to to your point on uh, what we should look at with the policy or or the tweets, I think in Poland you you definitely 
put a lot of emphasis on the policy and and you you basically you appreciate what uh, Donald Trump has done so far in terms of uh, uh, strengthening the eastern NATO flank the NATO resilience initiative and and also in terms of uh, uh, increasing um, uh, the, the defense spending, uh, um, and and this is uh, this is what what the people care uh, a lot, and I think this this policy uh, aspect uh, tends to be even overestimated, and the tweets or these uh, you know chaotic kind of uh, communication um, of of his uh, policies by Donald Trump. It tends to be underestimated in the Polish political establishment, and pro- probably because uh, there is no other alternative. The, the Polish uh, political class, but and especially uh, the current government, uh, which um, has a very serious conflict with the European institutions, with some other EU member states, uh, has invested so much into politically, ideologically, into this relationship with the US that uh, it it needs to and has to believe that this uh, special relationship with Washington is uh, is true and is is uh, is uh, living and, and kicking and uh, because if um, the the opposite was true the whole uh, concept of Pol- Polish security policy would collapse but i think uh, the fact is that uh, the the negative trends and the risks um, involved in this, I would say, very unpredictable policy by Donald Trump, uh, because unpredictability is probably the the key thing when it comes to Trump. It's uh, I, I don't know, or it probably no, nobody really knows what the strategy, if there is any strategy behind it, but that that this policy is unpredictable. Uh, that's uh, I think quite uh, quite quite certain, and so this unpredictability of of Trump's policy um, is something we should worry uh, the Polish political establishment. But nobody wants to acknowledge that um, that this is this is already the case. So, um, but I think that uh, you know this this NATO summit, uh, not only from the Polish perspective, but also from the broader European perspective, has has shown two things: that uh, mm, Trump does not perceive uh, the Europeans as allies anymore. I think they perceive. Allies are as, to be an ally is something different than to be a partner of uh, in a in a transactional uh, relationship. Mm, so stable allies uh, is something which is uh, not a category uh, which uh, I would even put it a different way, Piotr, which is that Trump doesn't believe in allies. Um, yeah, probably think about what America first means, and you think about what a transactional approach means. Uh, it means that you that you work with the countries that you can work with at the moment. You don't really have long-term relationships. Yes. Uh, promiscuity is the essence of your foreign policy, and you um, and allies are a problem because they're they're like sort of relatives who show up at your house to borrow money and then stay all day and won't leave your pool. Uh, they basically are demanding things because they are allies, as opposed to the tra- the transactional approach that you can take with with enemies like the Russians. Uh, 
Yes, and I think and I, my reading is that uh, Trump does not link long-term allies uh, because he doesn't need Europe in order to maintain the global multilateral order, uh, which he doesn't believe any longer in. And this is, of course, something uh, which is a profound change, um, especially for a country like Poland we, and for, for our government, which seems to believe that because of the fact that Poland is spending um, as much on defense as Trump expects, uh, because we are um, buying American uh, military uh, staff and for, for several other reasons, uh, also ideological proximity of the of the governments that we can count on on the US as it has been the case so far and that uh, we are do they believe perhaps the they only one or the only remaining long-term ally of the US but I think it's it, it's a completely wrong perception yeah. uh, and we we overestimate America's interest in Poland in in this part of uh, of Europe, and I, I believe that the, the America's uh, relationship with the uh, with Central Eastern Europe or with Poland is um, as transactional as with the other partners across the world. So I think that there is no exceptionality of Poland or Central Eastern Europe. But as long as we believe it in it, our our security policy and our foreign policy um, is on a very dangerous track. Well. Uh I guess hope is um, always the best strategy if you have no other strategy at all. Uh, Ulrika, I guess in this equation, Germany has has a, a sort of advantage over Poland, which is that it's kind of obvious that it can't count on Donald Trump. Um, uh, because in fact, he, he seems to have a specific animus toward, I guess, Germany or maybe Angela Merkel. Uh, which comes out, which has come out reasonably consistently and most um, most prominently at this summit. How do people in 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 Germany understand this uh, rather spectacular animus that Donald Trump seems to have, and what do they make of it? You're absolutely right. I think um, Germany, for for several reasons, has really become Donald Trump's enemy number one, which is something that we were worried about early on and this has very much materialized at the same time I mean once again we have this kind of oscillating between between extremes because you also after the morning during which uh, Donald Trump scolded especially Germany for not spending enough he was he gave a press conference with Angela Merkel where he was incredibly uh, you know, nice to her talking about the great relationship the two have and, and congratulating her on her success so it's it's once again a bit um, strange in terms of the impact that, that has really a balance you know I like you but you're a captive to Russia <laughs> well but, but that wasn't the same I think that would make me feel good about myself you know <laughs> Yeah, I mean the captive to Russia thing, by the way, is also it's 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 so absurd, especially with Angela Merkel, who grew up um, um, in East Germany, and and she made a point, kind of mentioning that, saying, yes, you know, we once were a captive of Russia, and I know how that feels, and that's certainly not the current well, situation. Well, then explain explain to our loyal listeners how it is that in the middle of all of these uh, terrible things that we hear about Russia, Skripal poisonings and invasions of Crimea and Ukraine that Germany is building this pipeline uh, that is going to bring billions of dollars to um, or billions of euros, excuse me, to into German coffers that's going to cut out 
Ukraine and Slovakia and Poland from a lot of transit fees. How does that fit with being a strong member of the alliance and uh, and how does that fit with the NATO solidarity that Germany is always demanding? Yeah, I really don't want to make the case for Nord Stream 2, um, the pipeline well, that you are you to make it personally, but I would I'd like to understand how how German uh, officials would see this and explain it. Yeah, so I think what's important to understand is that Nord Stream 2 is incredibly controversial within Germany. I mean, it's not as if, you know, all of the German political establishment is behind that. I think at this point we've kind of come to the point of no return where this will be built. I think what is incredibly important to, to emphasize here is that I, Donald Trump had this line about, you know, 70% of Germany's energy coming from Russia and that's why Russia controls Germany. And I mean, this is simply not true. Um, he may have been talking about gas and I think like half or so of German gas comes from Russia but that's about it. So uh, that's about it. So the energy dependency that, that Donald Trump is describing is not as strong as, as he seems to pretend. And I mean, it's also we live in a globalized economy. Um, everyone buys buys pretty much from everyone. Um, so so it seems weird to me to focus on this specific thing. But I'm I'm not gonna make the case for Nord Stream two. And to be honest, um, even within the political establishment, many people don't want to make this case. I. From, from what I know about it, from what I understand about it, honestly, I don't think it's it's as terrible as, as many people seem to describe. I don't think it's a great strategic uh, decision, but that being said, I'm sorry, but it doesn't mean that Germany is, is controlled by by Russia. It's, this is just absurd. And as a as a German newscaster um, commented the, the other night, um, Donald Trump didn't seem to have too much of an issue when Russia interfered in the, in the US elections in his favor, but now he has a problem with Russia allegedly interfering in German politics. I mean, you know, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. Well, hypocrisy is, I think, the great advantage of being president of the United States. You can kind of, you, can, you do seem to be able to get away with it. Um, Piotr, how is the Nord Stream thing understood in, in, um, in Poland? Is it, is, does, in Poland, do they believe that Germany is a captive to Russia? Well, I think, it, 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 of course, it's an exaggeration, and even even in Poland, you, you don't have this kind of perception of, of the German policy. I think the the Merkel's uh, line towards Russia, especially when it comes to Ukraine, has been very appreciated in Poland, and there is a recognition that that Merkel is the the pillar of of a um, reasonable European policy towards Russia. When it comes to Nord Stream 2, I think, you know, it has been a, a very, very long discussion because it started not with Nord Stream 2, but with Nord Stream 1, which um, used to be, uh, that was, you know, back in the, in the early 2000s, and um, Gerhard Schröder was um, one of the initiators of this, uh, of this project, and, and back then, uh, Nord Stream 1 was meant to be a, a pillar of a uh, new German-Russian uh, partnership for modernization um, uh, that was a, 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 something, in a, you know, which which was at that time seen as a as an opening of a completely new era. To, uh, today, this political dimension of Nord Stream Two, at least when it comes to um, to the. To, Merkel's approach and uh, how it is seen by part of the of the huge part of the German political establishment, this political dimension is not so uh, pronounced. And I think there is there are two 
key issues, uh, which are, of course, very um, criticized in Poland, but what we need to uh, to see them. Uh, the first is that um, in order to pre- prevent uh, Nord Stream 2 from happening, Merkel would have to risk a major conflict with, with big German energy companies, which are traditionally seen as the pillars of, of German's um, energy security, and they are even by law responsible for, for the state's uh, energy security. And secondly, uh, Merkel, I think, sees uh, um, uh, Nord Stream 2 also as one of the positive um, aspects of the relations uh, with Russia, uh, of which there are not so many. So this is also a, a, a one positive project, something where, where Germany, where Europe can talk uh, with Putin uh, about uh, not in a confrontational, confrontational terms, but but rather you know uh, just have a, a proper negotiations and transactions. But uh, from the Polish point of view, of course, Nord Stream Two is, is a bad thing. It's um, it's a danger for Ukraine. It's uh, it's uh, very, perhaps in the in the first place, it increases uh, Europe's energy dependence on Russia. And it increases Gazprom's role on on energy's EU internal market, which is uh, at odds with with the with the concept of energy union. It's, it's at odds with with long term European interests. But interestingly, for for Poland's energy uh, security, Nord Stream two is no longer such a big problem. The the, the diversification of energy. Supply in Poland has uh, been very advanced over the last uh, years, and uh, we are building a new Baltic pipe. We will we have also LNG uh, an LNG terminal and and spot contracts with uh, with Qatar with with the US companies. So so this diversification has um, has moved on, and and Poland is not going to be cut off by Nord Stream 2. So it's rather the geopolitical considerations related to Ukraine and um, the question of of Gazprom's role on the EU energy market, which are particularly seen particularly, you know, critically in, in Poland. That all sounds a bit too complicated for Donald Trump, but um, but I take your point. Uh, let's move on um, to the Let's move on, like Trump, to the uh, Helsinki summit with, or Helsinki bilateral meeting, as the U.S. is calling it, with Vladimir Putin. Um, Because, uh, you know, the week of Trump in Europe is not over. And actually, it's the summit uh, with Putin that people were most nervous about. Um, I was in Washington uh, last month, and there was a general impression that, particularly following what what Trump viewed as a very successful summit with uh, the North Korean leader, uh, that he was really feeling like uh, he wanted to have a one-on-one meeting with Vladimir Putin, that he felt like he could bring the force of his personality and the force of his will into that meeting, and he could open up all sorts of new uh, possibilities, um, much as he feels he did in North Korea. And I have to say, even his even his staff was made quite nervous by this approach. Uh, And they've been trying to prepare this meeting, but I have the impression that even they don't quite know what he's gonna do. So uh, I'd love to have a sense from you guys about 
what are the what are the expectations slash fears slash nightmares of the uh, the Trump Putin uh, meeting that's coming up in Helsinki? And why don't we start with you, Manuel? Okay. Um... When Macron was elected a year ago, one of the things that he was mentioning during his campaign was that uh, France needed to talk again more genuinely with Russia. The criticism was that Hollande was not talking anymore to, to Russia, or at least not in, a, in an effective way, and that Macron wanted to reestablish that. And one of the first things that Macron did when he was president was to invite Putin in Versailles. You had this big, very Uh, protocolar meeting. And well, nobody's questioning the right or the even the even the you know basic core idea that it might make sense to talk to to exactly. The it, thing the question is, is, what is he going to say? The thing is, fast forward, uh, and and Macron had a few things to say about Russian interference in French politics and uh, European politics, about what is happening in Ukraine, about what is happening in Syria. He actually laid out a number of issues on which he wanted progress. And he said, the two of us at the, the level of head of state are there and we want to move forward on this. One year later, he was in St. Petersburg a few weeks ago. And I must say, uh, the, the record for that uh, discussion and what he got out from Putin uh, is not very impressive. Obviously, uh, it's not the same when you're president of the US than when you're president of France. But I think that Putin has a good track record of Uh, not giving uh, much that he doesn't see why he should be giving it. Um, and and so the question is that you have a sense of what Putin wants. Uh, he actually wants uh, probably many things from the West, like sanctions relief, like uh, a kind of uh, rubber stamping of uh, what Russia has uh, uh, ended with uh, in Syria, Um, de facto uh, neglect towards what is happening in Ukraine, maybe, etc., etc. But you really don't see what he's willing to give as a quid pro quo for what he expects from the West. And I think that this kind of more and more uh, assertive policy that the Russians have doesn't indicate any genuine willingness to actually do deals As, uh, as Trump would say. What will the French do if, uh, if uh, Putin, comes out, Putin and Trump come out of that meeting with their hands clasped together and, say, and, and Trump announces, you know, I've solved the Russian problem, uh, we don't need the sanctions anymore, and we can get rid of those wasteful exercises in Eastern Europe? Uh, what will well, the French response be? The good thing is that probably uh, the, that would need to be formalized and detailed and fleshed out in some way, just as the so-called denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula deal uh, from Singapore. Uh, I would definitely point out that the exercises in States. South Korea have in fact been canceled. And, and the, yeah, well, it's not the same uh, as having a fully fleshed out uh, thing. So no. if, if the U.S. policy announced, if, if the U.S. president announced uh, unilateral U.S. decisions, that's one thing. If he says, uh, look, uh, I'm going to lift sanctions, I'm not sure this is uh, totally in his uh, power. And it doesn't mean that the Europeans are going to, to do so. And probably they're going to say, well, okay, sure. But let's look at what that means and, uh, and what is happening with it. And The world problem I, I feel with Europeans uh, and how they face Trump right now is that they, they are 
they're playing, uh, uh, they're trying to, to gain uh, some time. Uh, that they're, they're basically saying, okay, this is, this is not going to last or this is not going to happen or this is just something that uh, um, puts us in a very difficult situation, but let's wait and hopefully at one point it will change or it will be better. But there's not even a lot of uh, planning to organize for that kind of uh, direction that the US policy uh, is taking under Trump. And I think the French maybe are the ones who try to have a few ideas about how Europeans can organize, etc. But in the short term, they're just like the rest. The Iran deal is a good example that you have a lot of people in France talking about how you need economic sovereignty at the European level, how you need uh, to deal with sanctions uh, with the same uh, very brutal and transactional way that the US deal with it, including uh, secondary sanctions, etc., etc. But as far as the Iran deal goes, Right now, there's not a lot happening and, and Europeans are probably not equipped, not ready, not, there's no consensus to do that in the short term. And so the, the question is this gap between the immediate things that Trump comes with and hopefully uh, he's not going to come with too much, too precise from so his... There's that strategy of hope again, where they're just sort of hoping exactly. to outlast him and but hoping that the uh, US system will reassert itself. I don't know uh, if it's hope that the U.S. system will reassert itself, but it's hope that it takes a bit of time so that you have uh, the ability to organize. But the efforts to organize is what uh, is missing. Right. Uh, so, Ulrika, um, about the about the Trump-Putin meeting, how are you seeing that? Are you uh, are you worried about a new Yalta? <laughs> oh man, I hope it's not a new Yalta. Um, so what I'd like to say is that it, here in Brussels, I have only heard fears about this meeting. I mean, there, there are two main fears, namely that um, Trump could accept uh, the annexation of Crimea as legitimate or at least you know, as, as, as a reality that won't be changed anytime soon, and that he could agree to withdrawing troops from Russia's western flank. Um, and I think the only hope that I have heard in Brussels is that that may not happen. So, I mean, the best case scenario really is a kind of status quo and survive this um, this summit. Um, I think the German view is slightly different in so far as that there is some hope that this somewhat strange relationship between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin may serve to keep Vladimir Putin and Russia in the kind of international uh, in, in the debate, let's say, um, uh, which is something that Germany has always been very, very focused on, um, keeping keeping the dialogue with Russia open. So I think there's there's maybe some hope that the, this meeting could serve in that extent. But um, again, so I haven't uh, Trump in Ostpolitik. Yeah, yeah, maybe something like that. Yeah, but I haven't really good. Uh, sorry, I haven't really heard a kind of best case scenario or even a good case scenario. Yeah. Uh, Piotr, what are they what are they talking about in terms of a new Yalta in Poland? And if uh, if Trump does indicate some sort of change in position on Ukraine or Crimea, how will that be received? Uh, you know, I think this is again the, the, an example of this uh, policy or politics of hope in in, in Poland yeah. that uh, that we basically believe that uh, we, we we tend to to see. 
the facts and we tend to ignore the uh, the, the the big debate uh, which is going on and uh, and we we tend to see the meetings of trump uh, with uh, with the dictators like uh, Kim Jong Un or or um, uh, Putin uh, um, as just you know parts of uh, uh, of Trump's uh, new world view and uh, and his approach um, uh, which which is characterized by you know uh, bilateral deals and uh, but but deals which do not really entail much substance uh, and and I think the hope here is again that uh, it will uh, the, these nightmare scenarios will not materialize that there will mm, no deal um, uh, when it comes to Crimea or Ukraine in the first place that perhaps uh, some more concrete results can be found uh, on on Syria where you know Poland's interests are not at stake, so so we perhaps are not so much worried about that. Uh, so so it's but but of course it is if if anything if anything meaningful happens at this Helsinki summit and meaningful from the Polish uh, perspective would be for example a concession made by Trump towards Putin when it comes to the NATO eastern flank or or permanent deployment of American troops, a declaration that no permanent deployment of American troops uh, could ever happen, that would uh, send a very strong signal to Poland and would uh, increase this confusion when it comes to the assessment of, of what... But hope would, hope would survive that kind of development, do you think? Uh, difficult to say, of course. I mean, it, it, the, the, the more concrete these concessions would be, um, the, 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 the more likely scenario that the hope uh, will not survive. Because uh, I think um, the key interest of, of, of the Polish government today is to go even beyond the, the NATO uh, Cardiff summit conclusions and uh, go beyond the, the one American brigade on the Polish soil. Uh, we would like to see more American and still. Um, I think we're, we're nearing the end of our time, so we should probably wrap up. I think if there's one takeaway from this, it is that Europe is a very hopeful place uh, when it comes to Donald Trump, uh, but not a terribly strategic place. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll, it, it sounds as if we will continue to see Europe being uh, reactive to Trump's unpredictability and, uh, oddly speaking, somewhat surprised by what he does, even though there's no reason anymore to be surprised. Um, but uh, let's end it there. We will certainly come back to this issue uh, when Mark returns from China and the podcast resumes its normal voice. But let's also finish up with our usual segment on the bookshelf. And if each of you could give us a sense of uh, what you're reading now and what you would recommend to the audience. Uh, why don't we start with you, Manuel? This is this is summertime, so I need to uh, shift my pile of nonfiction book for the pile of fiction book that I have saved for the summer. Good but idea. One thing that I will take for vacation is the two latest issues of uh, Esprit, a French journal. Uh, one is on uh, the open society uh, as a concept and as a, a reality. 
And the other one is about uh, hospitality and obviously about immigration. And so I will take these two with me. And what I've read from them already is quite, uh, quite interesting and thought provoking. Uh, I think you need some education in what summer trash reading actually consists of, but uh, that that's does my, sound, that's my does sound interesting. I would definitely bring with those with me on vacation, but I wouldn't actually read them. Uh, Ulrika, what are you reading these days? Uh, it's very easy for me because I need to read the 23-page uh, communique coming out of the summit. I think I've made it to page 10 or so. It's actually really long and quite substantial. And so um, I'm going to read this. I'm not sure yet whether I'll recommend it to our listeners. Maybe maybe I should because, you know, as was mentioned earlier, um, in terms of uh, what actually comes out of this summit in, in terms of policy, uh, the communique is, is what we need to turn to and it, and it looks quite good. So uh, maybe we should all be reading that rather than listening to Donald Trump talk about uh, NATO. I don't know. I think I'm going to wait until they make the communique into a movie. <laughs> right. Uh, Piotr, what are you reading? I hope it's something better than the first two. Yeah, that's, I think it's 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 better than definitely better than the NATO communique, and uh, and this is also sort of a summertime reading, but it's a biography of the Ludwig II of Bavaria, the very eccentric uh, king in, in the mid late nineteenth uh, um, century, and uh, perhaps it has some relation to the current politics in Bavaria. Perhaps it it helps and better understand the eccentric. Um, moves by Horst Seehofer. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, that is better than the first two, I suppose. But I, I do think that, in general, this uh, this particular episode of Bookshelf shows that ECFR scholars are maybe a little bit too attached to their jobs. Uh, but we'll try to in in the in the coming weeks we'll try to broaden them out a little bit. Uh, but uh, thank you for listening. Um, please do rate us. Uh, on iTunes. And if you do, please note that you really enjoyed the show in which Jeremy Shapiro substituted for Mark Leonard and that you'd like him to do that all the time. I think that that would be very important to note. Uh, And thank you for listening. Goodbye.